This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And here on the Accounting Influencers Podcast, we're bringing you the news, not just the news, Martin, but it's the insights for what it means for accounting practices, the takeaways, if you like. And what have you got for us this week? Yeah, the guys, this section is pretty what you missed. You didn't know you missed it for example. So we try and bring you a whole range of us to, if we were to read you the headlines from Accounting Today or Accounting Web or Accounting Age or Accounting Anything, uh, each week, you'd stop subscribing to this show. So we are changing that up. And we have an organization who produced a report. Now, for full transparency, we are not affiliated in any way with this organization. In fact, we hadn't heard of them prior to this report. So this is Infinity Globus, who have produced a at 10 times growth strategies for CPA and accounting firms. And they establish their position in the first sentence where they say, achieving 10X, so 10 times growth, is a dream for many CPAs and accounting firms, for many. Um, and most of them struggle to find the right pathway to accomplish their dream growth. I would take that further and say they don't even know what their dream growth is. Um, and they say, that the targets for 10x growth should be on certain achievable and countable metrics. I didn't even know countable was a word. Prepare an objective view and keep an eye on the firm's KPIs. So straight away, guys, they establish what we already know. Build a dashboard and measure it. And you've been taught that by everyone. Build a dashboard and measure it. You can't manage what you can't measure sort of thing. Okay? But what they have done here is they've taken what they believe are their best strategies that can be implemented by CPAs and accountants to achieve... 10x growth in the next year. Now, interestingly, there is no proof of this. So they could just have plucked 10 out of the backside for this. But it is a fairly good summation. And that's why we bring it to you on this show. Number one is technology and automation. Now, that's nothing new to you. But what they say here is one third of the task, tasks performed by employees can be automated and can reduce manual and repetitive tasks. So what we would say to you on this uh, this show is, is that true for you? Have a look, have a think. Is one third about right? Is it two thirds? Is it one eighth? How many tasks currently manually delivered in your firm could be reasonably automated without a major upheaval? And I like the stat they put on the article, Martin, and we'll put the link to it in the show notes, that over 40% of workers surveyed spend at least one quarter of their work week on repetitive, automatable tasks. Yes. And then there's a distinction to be drawn between what can be automated and what you want to be automated. Their point two, guys, is innovate, adapt, improvise. That last one not being common to our profession. And they suggest that a key strategy to growth is to always keep looking for new verticals for growth. Now, that bit would not be adopted by too many firms, but you'll like the bit that comes afterwards. Check what other CPA and accounting firms are offering. This is the nugget for you guys. Because... In the accounting profession, we love to not be the first person to do anything at all, but to be the eight people to do it. And we love someone else to go first and make all the mistakes on our behalf. So what I think will very much appeal to this listenership is the ability to go snooping and looking over the wall at what other accounting firms are offering and comparing it to what we ourselves offer to see whether there's anything we should bring into our stable of offerings that we don't already have. So imagine markets, there's loads of new businesses and sectors opening up, Martin, but you're saying, look at what's already working and where your competition are making a killing and get in there and do it bigger and better. That's right, because the implication or the inference is that these service lines are offered because they're already making money. That's not necessarily true, but it's our likely assumption. It wouldn't be on the site if they weren't making money from it. So therefore, 
if they've got something that we haven't, can we offer that and how fast? So number three on their report was managing the current workforce. And they say managing the current workforce and keeping them updated with the latest changes in the accounting industry is an essential point to focus on. Well, an essential point for me to focus on is the use of terminology. And I would say the accounting profession. So just to be clear, the accounting industry is all those vendors who produce solutions for accountants. And the accounting profession is the practice of accountancy. So what I think they're saying here is to keep them updated with legislative changes and what's going on in the marketplace. So why don't you just do both? And it's very simple on infirm intranets um, and inform, uh, infirm Slack groups or Teams Slack groups, sorry, Teams uh, channels to be able to post a simple update for everyone to take a look at and say, this is changing, this legislation's come in, here's where we're up to on MTD if you're in the UK and so on. So I like that. The way they made it a growth strategy is they said for 10X growth to occur, one needs to upskill their current workforce and manage them smartly. So what they're suggesting here is that by keeping your staff engaged and not mushrooming them, keeping in the dark and feeding them crap, then you are able to make them more aware, more alert, more, uh, more assured, more knowledgeable, more able to resolve concerns of clients, more able to suggest opportunities for the firm, et cetera, and so forth. And that's where the growth comes from. In point four, digital marketing. They say... This is the digital era and accounting firms need to put themselves on the digital map. Now, this must be about the 4,000th time you've heard this message. So we don't plan to tell you too much about this. Simply that if you put yourself forward as an advisor and not just an accountant, and you don't know where your new business is coming from other than referral, you ain't much of an advisor because you don't know yourself how to grow your firm because you don't know where your money's coming from because you're not doing any marketing that's generating inquiries beyond reactive referrals. So on that basis, I will not say more about digital marketing other than to be part of the conversation for the partners in the practice. The fifth point is feedback. And they say, while chalking out the growth strategy for accounting firms, that's an interesting turn of phrase, chalking out, meaning just sketching the outline, do not forget to consider the feedback of previous or existing clients. Usually we do client surveys to feel better about ourselves. 82% of you say you're wonderful. Great. But this one says previous which means they left. Don't, it says, don't forget to consider the feedback of those who left and why did they leave? And what do we learn from that? That's a great point from this report. So guys, basically, they then put the whole thing together after those five points uh, into how you can drill down into all of these. Uh, as Rob says, we'll put the link in there for, in, in the show notes for you to take a look at. But again, like all of these insights, these are suggestions, hints. They are not recommendations. What we recommend you do is to be proactive enough to look at articles like this and then decide for yourself what is the right fit and the appropriate timing for your firm. Yeah, and the news is just news. It's just knowledge unless you do something with it. So by all means, take a look at the article. What we do know, Martin, just to finish this off, is that firms that do exactly the same as they've been doing are going to become obsolete and irrelevant in the marketplace, and nobody can afford to do that. Yeah, so somewhere between that and surviving. I think survival is a realistic outcome for anybody who does the same as they've already done because there's a long track record to prove that they survive. But what doesn't happen is you don't solve your problems ever. And you keep telling me that pricing is the issue or team is the issue or succession is the issue or you know lack of quality new business is the issue or practice tech is the issue because nothing's ever done differently to solve these issues. So that's why you do this, in order to have a different, more advanced set of problems yeah. next year than you had this year. And thank you for tuning in to this news one. We're going to be going into season three at the beginning of July 2022, and we will still be doing this Tuesday show. It will have a different name, and it will be a standalone podcast 
called Insights in Accounting. Martin and I will be doing similar stuff and looking at news, topical stuff, analysis, building your commercial awareness, putting the news under the microscope, maybe recommending some podcasts and other things, talking about the implications of certain things that are happening. Martin may do his uh, rants on certain things going on in the accounting profession and the fintech industry. So check out Insights in Accounting. That will be coming out in a few weeks. We'll have a couple more news episodes coming up in coming weeks. But thank you for listening. Thank you for being an accounting influencers podcast advocate and do share it and we'll see you next time for the news improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly fly. the accounting influencers podcast with rob brown and martin bissett Welcome to our special guest interview for this week. And I'm thrilled to have with me back for the second time, Kevin Appleby of Grow CFO. Hello to you. Hello again, Rob. Great to be back. Kevin, we don't invite everybody back, so you must have done something right. We had a terrific conversation last time about this CFO role, how it differs from and is similar to the accounting role. Do you just want to summarise that conversation for us in 60 seconds? The CFO is person on the, the management team that is looking after the finances is giving the financial information on a regular basis to the rest of the the board, but is also involved probably in most of the business decisions that are taking part. The CFO is probably the outward-looking face of finance, though. He's looking towards the customers, suppliers, investors, and so on, not just looking down at running the accounting systems, getting the numbers together, producing the P&L accounts, and so on which I'd, I'd see more as a financial controller, head of finance role. And we talked about the crossover in the route to being a CFO with the accounting qualification. More and more businesses these days are asking more of their accountants as that trusted advisor and almost that CFO role. So explain to us from your standpoint, what's been asked of accountants in dealing with the complexities of modern day business? I think there's there's kind of two areas here, Rob. There's, the accountant could either become more of a CFO rather than, than seeing his client when there's some tax advice to be done. Is that like a part-time FD type? It's a part-time FD. And we're, we're seeing a, a, a fair few people in our community that we call portfolio or fractional CFOs. Now, they'll, they'll probably have four or five clients and they'll give a day a week to each and they'll be involved in financial advice and so on. And I, I think that's something that somebody in practice can move into. You've got to ask what sort of advice are those companies looking for? Because it's it's more than bookkeeping. It's more than putting the accounts together. It's probably because they want somebody who can go and build sensible financial forecasts, financial models, because they're potentially going to an investor for money. Possibly somebody who knows the investment world, knows how to go and talk to a, a pre-seed investor or a seed fund investor. We talked in the last show about the changing role of the CFO. And there's certainly a changing role of accountants that have traditionally looked backwards, if you like, that compliance angle, that historical viewpoint of things to that trusted advisor, that consultant, that peer of the buyer, that strategic visionary, if you like, of a business. And this brings us into the realm of consulting services that accountants are more and more occupying. Yeah. And that we, we talked about that that idea of being the fractional CFO, but there's also the consultancy side of it as well, doing projects for the client. Um, there's a very simple way into that, in my view. You know, folk are constantly wanting to upgrade accounting systems. The the thing that we find most of our members, we, we've got an event that takes place in Gross CFO every Tuesday lunchtime we call Future of Finance Functions. And typically we'll get a guest along to present on a particular subject. 
and it's all been member driven. We've we've with member we've asked members to tell us what they want to learn about, and we've brought the guests on. Tell us what the next steps are if we've if we're outgrowing Zero and QuickBooks. What what can we do to better integrate and automate? Expense automation is a big one always because that's something that can really get rid of some workload. There's a lot of interest in in KPI report. What systems are around that can do that? There's planning and budgeting. What are the alternatives for using an Excel spreadsheet? And where can we find some expertise about doing some of that better? So the natural role into consultancy for folk in practice is into any of those areas. And firstly, you should have sufficient expertise. When your client comes along and has got a problem in a particular area like that, you should at least have a, an opinion on what to do and what the best systems are. Well, there's so many and there's so many different features of them. I believe there's there's a thousand apps that you can plug into Zero, and probably more for Sage and Intuit and everything else. So have we got to a point, Kevin, where the modern day CFO, the modern day accountant needs to be a, a techno geek as much as a technically competent professional? There's a lot they need to know. There's a lot they need to know, yes. It's more than turning a computer on and off, isn't it, these days? <laughs> The, the CFO really has got more to worry about than get into that sort of problem. I think that that's probably where the, the where practice can really add value to the CFO role. No? The CFO just wants to kind of choose a system, get it implemented and get on with using it. And once it, once once the CFO's done that, it's it's end of move to the next problem. So you wouldn't really want to go through the process of really getting to know what all the alternatives are, what's best, what's worst. You kind of want somebody to come along and take you through a process, ask you a few questions that kind of give the give them some idea of what's important to you. And based on that, can advise and well, you've told me these four things. Therefore, we think this particular integration is probably the right one for you. Or we we know there's these three. Now here's here are the pros and cons of each. What do you think? One of the key differences between CFOs and accountants is that commercial angle. And, and I mean by that that Accountants are often expected to bring in new business, bring in new work, either by magnifying the additional services to existing clients or going out and finding new clients. And whether you call that rainmaking or business development or everything else, that's not a role a traditional CFO has. But I guess in bringing in consultancy services in that fractional CFO role, accountants can do more for their clients, can't they? And find those revenue sources. Yeah, absolutely. They can they can do a lot more for their clients and and, and they've got to. And I've got a, a model that's it's called vital, but it, it really comes from the, the thing is that you can either be functional or you can be vital. <laughs> and anything functional can be automated. <laughs> if your key sets of services that you're putting together around taking the books and submitting them to the inland revenue. If your key services around doing payroll for people, so on, they're all things that are becoming easier and easier and easier. It's commoditizing, isn't it? Commoditized. They're totally commoditized. So, you know, more and more is going to be automated out of existence. So you've got to become vital. You've got to be able to give that extra bit of business advice. And so, and I've, I've put an acronym around the, the, the letters of vital. When you said vital, I was thinking relevant. I was thinking in, in, insightful. You've got to speak the language of the business owner. You've got to speak into their pain and their problems and speak into their opportunities. So you've got to be absolutely essential. That's what the trusted advisor role claims to be for accountants. So yeah, if you've got an acronym around vital, let, let's talk through those, Kevin. This will be easy to remember for the accountants listening. And what would you describe there is actually a lot of the second letter, the I, which stands for insight. insight. But the first one is V, which is visionary. And here's where the, there's the biggest mindset switch, Rob. And it, 
it affects the CFO as much as the accountant in, in practice. We're used to putting PL accounts together. We're used to reporting numbers. But it's a, it, it's a little bit like driving your car and only looking through the rearview mirror. All the numbers tell you, all the PL account tells you is what happened in the past. It's not going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. So one of the biggest switches is to is to become an authority on on telling people how to forecast, how to look at strategic options, thinking through the alternatives that lie ahead. So uh, the accountant in practice, I would, I would say that you know, as well as getting involved in the the actual results, the submissions, the tax man, the company's house, get involved with helping a client to prepare his budgets. So you're talking about helping with financial models, reporting you mentioned, and in our last interview, you talked about the emergence of KPIs in that forecasting element. Absolutely KPIs. And I think KPIs, definitely, now everybody's got KPIs these days. One of the performance I, indicators for our listeners who are not yeah. well-versed with KPIs. Yeah. One of the things I used to do way, when I first became a consultant at PwC, I was involved in the part of PwC's consultancy business, putting balanced scorecards together, putting KPIs together. And we'd, we'd go through an exercise where we'd work out what it is the business should be measuring. Then we'd scratch our heads and think about where's the data coming from. Now, take that forward, best part of 20 years, we've now got the opposite problem of we've got so much data it's working out which bits of data are actually meaningful and we should use. Like you can go into Google Analytics and look at what a website's done. You can spend an afternoon clicking on various things, getting loads of nice graphs, tables, whatever. You come out of it and you think, well, that was all very interesting. We're going to do anything different as a result of that. Deluged by the data. Deluged by the data. Yeah. If the data is not telling you anything useful in order to make a decision, it's not a relevant piece of data. So great. That's the visionary. Kevin, the strategic, the forward-thinking look of it. The, the next one in vital was insight. Insight. Well, no, that's understanding the economic engine of the business, not the PL account. Um, I actually put a podcast together of my own on the Grow CFO show a few weeks ago where we're talking about what, what's wrong with the PL account. And the thing is, the PL account doesn't really tell you about it tells you what you've spent money on. And probably if you've got some cost centers behind that, it tells you. Who spent it? it? Never tells you why you spent it. it. Doesn't tell you about the economics of the business. It doesn't tell you about the profitability of customers, the profitability of products. It doesn't tell you about what are the things you've got to do in order to make money. And I've seen some of your writings. You talk about activity-based costing as a core skill, don't you, Kevin? Absolutely, absolutely. And what I've learned in times as as consultant, you know, you'd my job on an awful lot of consulting projects would be the finance guy in the team that would need to go in and work out, okay, we're going to transform this particular business process. What does the current process cost us? Where can we make some savings? What's the future process going to cost? If I said to the, the average accounts team, okay, what does the purchase to pay process cost you? They'd scratch their heads and think, <laughs> no idea. There isn't a line in the PL account that tells me what the purchase to pay process costs. I'd go and I'd do. I'd, I'd have a simple process map where I'd probably have nine or ten individual processes that go on within overall purchase to pay, and I'd start asking a lot of people across the business, well, how much time do you spend in each one of those process stages? Okay, and well, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't want them to start timesheeting down the last fifteen minutes, but no. Is it is it ten percent of your day goes into that process? Is it fifteen percent of your day? It's big, big handfuls. But then you get an idea that you can very quickly cost salaries together. You can stick some on costs in there of other costs that, that are driven by people. And you find in most businesses, the costs you look at are driven by people and what they do. 
and you suddenly then get a get a feeling for what the purchase to pay process altogether might cost you right from the purchase order being raised to paying the supplier mm. so we're talking about accountants being vital instead of functional in their role serving the client and the functional being the commoditized automated kind of services and we've got in this acronym vital we've got the visionary we've got the insight talk us through the t kevin the t is the team okay? everybody in the team at your client has their own problem okay and I, I've learned this one from being the, the business accountant sitting in the business meeting, coming along and presenting business PL account each month. And here you just see the marketing folk, the sales folk, they switch off at this point. They're not really interested, but the sales folk have suddenly got a problem that is his client aren't paying the bills. They should really be putting the client on stop until the bill's paid, but then they know the client's got a bit of a problem. Um they're very keen then to take the business account out to talk to the client, to talk through their financial situation, sort out a payment plan, things like that. You know? It's about knowing what's keeping the rest of the team awake at night and how you can help on specific problems. That's very pertinent. Their agenda rather than your agenda. Yes. Accountants would see the, the line into the business owner the managing director, the CEO, if you like, but they wouldn't necessarily see that they've got to build consensus and relationships with the whole management team. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We've got VIT. This is a, this is a great acronym. <laughs> I have to be more relevant. Let, let's go with A. A is Agile. Agile is all about driving change. We've touched on it already. We've talked about that role as the advisor about financial systems, automation, and so on. But um, the biggest place that you, you can add value is advising on that change, helping drive that change, helping manage that change. So there's there's a whole bunch of skills in, in within the A. The, the first one is is knowing what to advise, knowing the options, being able to talk a good good talk. The second part of that is is about having the implementation skills to take that to the stage beyond having recommended something and hand holding the client through the process of implementation then you can break down into two sets of skills. Skill A is project management, but the softer set of skills, and I think probably the most valuable set of skills is the change management set. How do you actually drive the change all the way through that process? It's not just the consensus in the first place of, oh, we'll go for this system. No, it's the change through, okay, fine, we've, we've, we've convinced the, the, the owner. Now we've got to convince the people that are going to use the system. We've got to involve the people that are using the system. We've got to train the people that are using the system. We've got to make sure that, that hands are held appropriately, that's, that people are up to speed, they can use the new tools. A whole load of things go under, the, under that change piece. So it's not going to be always the same as it is today. And you've got a very big role in advising and helping your client with what's new. Especially if you're advocating new technology for that business client and adoption is a big thing, isn't it? Getting that rolled out throughout the company. And that brings us actually very nicely into the L and the L is learning. You can only be that vital advisor if you are constantly learning. It's Life is no longer about what it was that you passed your exams in. And I still expect that letter to come back from the Institute of Child Accounts. Oh, Mr. Appleby, we just reviewed your, your, your taxation exam at PE2. You actually failed. <laughs> so I still don't know how I ever passed that one, Rob. But you, know, you think back to the skills you learned to pass your exams. How often do you actually use them these days? It's a whole different set of skills. Well, I, as a former high school maths teacher, 
an accusation of mathematics was that it teaches children very little that they use in real life. It's not fit for purpose. We don't teach them how to budget. We don't teach them what interest is really in managing an account and, and things like that. So, and I'm mindful of a great quote by Eric Hoffer, Kevin. He said, the mark of an educated person is the degree to which they are willing to let go of old ideas to embrace new ideas. And with accountants and CFOs, you're right, a lot of what they learn is no longer relevant. We are in a new world. Everything's changing. We have to keep reinventing ourselves as an expert. And I think across a consultancy career of 20 years, I reinvented myself in what I consulted in on about four or five different occasions. The Madonna of the finance world. <laughs> I joined Coopers and Lyber and PwC straight from, the, straight from my role in ICI. And I got involved in a big, big project in the Ministry of Defence. So by accident, I managed to rebrand myself as a, as a defence consultant. But I always remember we were out to dinner with some very senior folk in PwC one night. My project director, Alan, said, introduced me to this particular partner as the world's leading authority in munitions accounting. Wow. And I sort of looked at Alan and thought, well, I'm not doing anything special, Alan. <laughs> and then Alan afterwards said, yeah, Kevin, you're not doing anything special, but you're the only one doing it. Therefore, you're the world authority. <laughs> Keep claiming that until somebody tells you or proves that you're not. I've, I've moved from being defence consultant to a, a transport consultant, local government advisor, shared services expert, NHS expert, somebody who specialises in writing business cases for investments. Your gross CFO site, that will give people a lot of encouragement and support on doing things like this, whether they're BCFOs or accountants. Would that be right? Absolutely. There's loads in there, loads in there to help you. And accountants, they do really need to raise their game. They've got ever more demanding clients with ever greater expectations that go beyond the historical, the rear view mirror, as you said. So we'll put your contact details on the show notes here. Would you leave us with a few words of encouragement for accountants that do want to step into consulting services? They do want to be more vital to their business clients. They want to serve them better in the complex world that we, we, live, we live in. Yeah, it can be done. And I'd say as well, Rob, you mentioned gross CFO and resources. No? Come along to Grow CFO on most Tuesday lunchtimes. We've got the Future of Finance Function session going. You can learn an awful lot about what finance leaders are worried about and what, what things it is that you can potentially advise them. And you can also learn a lot about the products that are out there. We've also got the CFO competency framework. Have a go at that. You'll see all the skills that the, the typical finance leader in a business should have. Where is it perhaps that you need to develop? And that'll get you thinking outside of the box on some of those traditional advisory role things into some new areas. And we've got training courses sitting in Gross CFO behind each one of those. So you know, if you if you come along as a premium member, we can give you a lot more. That's GrowCFO.net. And a premium membership is worth looking at because knowledge is easy to find, but it's not so easy to make sense of and implement into your life. And a little bit of mentoring, a little bit of coaching, a little bit of help works there, doesn't it, Kevin? That does. And, you know, the way... We look at that premium membership, Rob, is you probably go along to Costa every day <laughs> Starbucks, and buy yourself a cup of coffee. You spend two or three quid. You do that every day of the year. You've paid, you've paid the equivalent of Gross CFO premium membership. Wouldn't you spend the price of a cup of coffee a day on your own personal development? Investing in yourself. Well, Kevin Appleby of Gross CFO, that's been excellent. Thanks so much for your time and your insights today. Rob, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. talking about employer branding for accounting firms over the last few weeks and it's really hitting home in the talent crisis can we call it a crisis there's definitely a labor shortage there's a drifting 
out of accountants going into industry, going into fintech. Accountants not even coming into the profession at all. We've heard of the great resignation. People that have been in accounting for some time recalibrating their lives, looking at what's important. So if you are going to both attract and retain the talent that you need to grow your accounting firm, then your employer brand is important. Your employer brand is basically the promise you make to your current and potential hires to say, this is what it's like working here. This is what you get. Here's the psychological as well as the legal contract. And there are various aspects of employer brand. And where it comes out is your website, uh, your vacancies, what goes out there in the public domain, your social media presence, and the conversations that your employers are having with their networks. And one of the key aspects of employer brand is what we're focusing on today, which is prioritizing employee well-being. This conversation wasn't fashionable a few years ago, but after COVID, social isolation, the pandemic, virtual working, hybrid working, working from home, all of this stuff, trying to drive culture from distance is difficult. Trying to sell at distance is difficult. Trying to persuade, influence, communicate at distance is creating all kinds of problems, not just for the staff that you've got, but for their families, their loved ones, their children, the people around them. So prioritizing physical and mental health is a major and increasingly prominent aspect of employee workplace well-being. Uh, I saw a survey by the ICAW, Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, 34% of their members said that workplace well-being is something the industry or the accounting profession they should be saying is failing on. And they add that 31% of their members say that they have experienced mental health issues due to work pressures. Now, we could go on at length about what those work pressures are. We hear from many accounting practitioners and the ecosystem that surrounds them about increasing workloads. Supposedly, technology should bring in automation and make things easier, but in many ways it isn't. Client expectations have gone up, workload has gone up, working hours have gone up. People report that working from home means they're actually working longer hours and doing more than they otherwise would do. So where does this bring us? If you want to attract the best talent in today's market, you've got to ensure that you're promoting an effective and, and considered work-life balance for your employees. And obviously, there's times when your people have to just put the hours in, get the job done. But on the whole, your policies that you've got in place should protect wellness of your workforce. I'm reading a bit in the sports domain at the moment about welfare of athletes. There's been a lot of press in the UK about the sport of cricket, the sport of gymnastics. There's been major lawsuits in the US about gymnastics and the duty of care that coaches, mentors, trainers have over their athletes. And it's prevalent in many industries and sectors looking after your workforce. So obviously it doesn't mean that using technology is off the table. You've, you've got to use technology to enable flexible working so your employees can work from home whenever they need to. Uh, your attitude to your processes and procedures should suit your workforce because this plays into their employee mental well-being. So you've got to look after them, not just giving them a pay packet and a salary every month and making sure they've got a few benefits, but employees more and more expect their well-being to be at the heart of your employee proposition. So with people coming back into the workforce, you've got to promote employee well-being, not just make the promises, but deliver these promises. So I'm going to give you some practical steps to promote well-being at work. And let's kick off this practical bit by alluding to a study by Mind.org said 60% of workers report feeling more motivated and more likely to recommend their organization if their employer supports their mental well-being. And other studies verify this. Uh, it promotes employee engagement, organizational performance, 
So wellness initiatives that reduce stress, reduce pressure, it's great from HR best practice perspective. So what are you doing to raise the bar for health and well-being at work? Well, first thing you've got to say is it comes down to more than just initiatives. You can put in all kinds of campaigns, initiatives, you can put it in your values, you can radiate it all over your website. But how does that play out in the day-to-day workplace and the culture of your firm. You've got to make sure you walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And firms that invest in employer well-being, mental health, we know that they've got better productivity. We know that they've got a better retention of staff. We know that job satisfaction is higher. So you've got to put policies in place whereby you make it front and center and you follow through on your promises. So very quickly, improve staff retention. You've got to be able to keep your people. Otherwise, it's harder to attract people. So how do we increase staff retention? Well, you've got to make sure your employees are heard, cared for. They've got a voice. They've got some influence. They've got choice. They've got some autonomy, some flexibility in their role. They would even forego some salary, as long as it's competitive, for other benefits. And we've talked about employer benefits in previous episodes. Employee well-being is not just a, a buzzword and a tick box So improving staff retention means dialogue with your staff to say what it is they're looking for, how you can support them. Different staff, different people need different arms around them, different approaches. Some need to kick up the backside and some accountability. Some need a shoulder to cry on and an outlet, almost like psychotherapy, psychiatric. Not so much counseling. You're not equipped to deal with that, but we now hear of mental health first aiders. This depression, this breakdown, this overload, people snap, people can't cope, people need an outlet. And, and people to talk to. So improving staff retention by giving them an ear and a voice and a platform and an outlet and just listening, rewarding them in the ways that they need to be rewarded and nurturing them in those ways. That's really important. Next thing you've got to do in employer wellbeing is to maximize your candidate selection and your talent pool by showing that you go the extra mile for your people. And this speaks to your culture. And when people are looking for jobs, they look to your culture now. They don't just look at your website and see your values and your your employee value proposition, but they want examples of how that's played out. So they want to talk to your existing talent, find out how they've been looked after and what going the extra mile looks like for your staff so that they know when they get there, they're going to plug into that culture that really walks the walk. So that increases your candidate selection. It makes you more attractive as a value proposition. Specifically on increasing physical well-being and health, there are various wellness strategies that you can tap into. If you Google wellness strategies at work, both physically and mentally, to keep your staff tuned in, engaged, working to the best of their abilities without the drawbacks, get them involved in social and personal activities in work time, just helps recharge the batteries, look at impairments to the work, what stops them being productive, what the roadblocks are for them, what the sticking points are. Yes, like I said, they've got to concentrate on the task they've been assigned to. They've got to get the job done. But productivity will suffer if there are factors that are stopping them from getting the job done to the best of their ability. Good health means good resilience, less sick days, uh, less illness, less time off. And Even if your employees took a couple of less sick days a year across hundreds, thousands of employees, we know this really adds up. So being preemptive, being preventative with your approach, getting to problems more quickly, that is a proactive approach to managing physical well-being and health. Hey, listen, everyone's contending with something. Nobody's got it all sorted. Everyone has struggles. Everyone has tragedy, loss, illness, uh, disaster. Not happening so much to them. It could be the people around them, but it affects them. We're all dealing with something. Nobody's got it all sorted. Nobody has everything in hand. 
And at the end of the day, your firm's made up of its people. So it's in your business interest to make business personal look after your employees. Maximizing employee engagement. If they feel that they have influence in their working life and they have a voice in workplace wellness matters, if they feel they can make suggestions without being seen as weak, they're more likely to feel engaged, aren't they? So what forums are there? What mentoring, what coaching is there? What do you do when you want to one and your employee review procedures? Increased engagement is a cycle. The more engaged they feel, the more influence they'll have, the more they'll affect the culture of the firm, the more they talk about why it's a great place to work at your firm. It seeps into everything they do and it attracts more and more of the right talent and it keeps more and more people there. So this ultimately feeds into your training, your development, your initiatives, your policies, your procedures, how you're nurturing staff, how you're giving them a voice, how you're hearing them out and showing that from top down, vulnerability, admitting that you're struggling, uh, not having to be seen as strong all the time. Nobody's coping well. And if they are, it's just for a short season. Burnout, overload, overwhelm. You've got to give them opportunities to develop, grow, learn new skills, uh, communicate better their needs, their wants, what it is they're looking for to stay, what tech, what policies they need to help them do the job better, what workplace, remote working initiatives you can put in place. And finally, getting the right metrics to measure the impact of your wellness strategies. Because wellness, well-being, mental health, it's so intangible, isn't it? It's difficult to measure. To what degree is somebody mentally strong, mentally resilient? To what degree is, is mental health measured in work? It, it's at one day down the next. It's different for different people. Some people cope better than others with different things. So pay attention to your workplaces, your physical environments, your aesthetics, if you like. Silly things, natural lighting, good color schemes, boosting mood, reducing fatigue, focusing the mind, music at work, music not at work, uh, greenery, natural environments, Exercise, fitness, well-being, walk, cycle rack, showers, changing rooms, uh, walk to work, walk-in meetings, healthy diets, healthy food, lifestyles, company-wide initiatives, all of these organized hikes, bikes, yearly events, social events, charity challenges. There's so many examples out there, snacks, fruits, nuts. <laughs> it sounds crazy, smoothies, massages, so many things. Look at the learning, the on the job training, the environment, the skills you're giving them, the psychometric profile and the e-learning, the support, support, the counseling, the therapist. It, it sounds crazy that you have to think of all of these things, but this is where L&D, HR, good leadership, good management, good bosses, it all comes into the mix. Constant evaluating, reviewing of where people are at. People don't leave a bad firm, they leave a bad manager. So get your management and your reporting right. Managers aren't intentionally bad, but they need guidance, support, development on how they can manage their people on their mental resilience, mental well-being. What are the signs of stress? What are the signs of overload? What are the signs that people are not coping? Your managers, bosses, leaders, they need to be supported in the same way because they might be okay in themselves, but they've got to be the coaches, consultants, therapists, trainers to their people. And in your succession plan, managing who's coming through, you've got to teach these management and training and mentoring skills of your people. Look, it's a minefield, I know, but you've got a duty of care. You leaders, you people managing succession, managing the future of the firm, you've got to look after yourself and you've got to look after other people as well. A lot of this flies under the radars. It's 
implicit in the culture, but a lot of it's explicit as well. It's in your policies proceedings. So I'm just throwing a lot of things at you here, and I'm sure you're ticking a lot of the boxes in your firm right now, but take some responsibility for yourself, your own mental well-being, and communicate your needs so that you have the means to stay there and be looked after, but encourage others to talk as well. It's okay to be a little bit under the weather. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to stagnate, to be in a lull, to be in a rut. It's natural. What's not natural is not having an outlet to talk about that. So think about your own self-care. Think about the care of others. A lot I'm throwing at you, I admit here, but it is all part of your employer brand because if you can get this right, the culture of the firm is boosted. Engagement is higher. You're a more attractive proposition to talent outside and you're a bigger reason for talent to stay. Get engaged with me or Rob Brown on LinkedIn. I'd love to um, share with you an interesting proposition we've got here at Accounting Influencers to help you tell the success stories of how you're getting it right at your firm. Our Accounting Influencers Media gives you the uh, means by which to interview your people. And, and I do that. I come in and I talk to your people about why your place is a great place to work and how that plays out and how you look after your employees and create these real people telling real stories of real life accounting firm policies, procedures, workplace initiatives to say, you'll get places to wait, you should come here. Talk to us about that, but have a good do. Make a difference. Move the dial a little bit with yourself and your employee brand by promoting well-being in your workplace. You will have a massive competitive edge over many of your rival firms that are not quite getting a handle on this. Or if they are, they're not doing it as quick as you. Go and have a blessed day. Go and make a difference. Take care. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. Cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights, and wisdom from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to our special guest interview and back for the second time by popular demand, Gary Seamus. Good day, Gary. Good day. Gary, last time we spoke about the managing partner priority list, you've been in this game a long time and uh, we've got your bio and your background here in our show notes. You've been managing firms for a long, long time. You sold out. You're now training managing partners and through Winding River doing all kinds of great things, which we shared about on the last episode. What's changing in the accounting profession right now, Gary, and, and what kind of shape is it in? Well, I don't know if it's... Which- you know, what's changed is this whole element of this cultural side of it because of uh, the pandemic and the virtual office. I mean, that's a big change. And I don't think we have that figured out yet. I think that's a work in progress from the profession. Um, I wrote an article. It was in accounting today. Um, it was, it was kind of crazy. Uh, we put this article on LinkedIn after we wrote it. And I had about 20,000 people look at it. I've written all kinds of stuff. You know, if I have 300 people, I'm like, you know, jumping and doing hula hoops. Uh, here we have 20,000. And really what it was talking about was, uh, I think the way I said it was, uh, uh, we all went to bed on uh, March 16th, uh, 2020, and we woke up, it was March 17th, 2030. And what happened was 10 years had passed in one day. And uh, there's no doubt if you really think about it, from an evolutionary standpoint of what happened with technology and being able to use the resources that were there at the time the technology was available. There is no doubt that we would be today where we are today in 2030, we just didn't expect to get there in eight hours. And that's really amazing. And it's a lot to take. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to so many firms and so many firms were just like, they, they were just so proud of themselves for the ability to be able to do this overnight. Um, and, and they were, but a lot of them just didn't really understand the cultural elements of how this was going to change. So I still think we're dealing with that. We're dealing with remote workers. We're dealing with virtual workers. We're dealing with you know, our ability to socialize like we used to. Uh, and uh, uh, 
and, and, you know, that actually goes into opportunities in terms of clients where you wouldn't have clients outside of your territory. Now you could, but there's just so many changes that have happened uh, regarding that, which from a cultural standpoint, um, I think firms have to have a very open mind. I think we have to be in a learning type of thing. And maybe to a certain extent, we have to be in a, uh, you know, an, an element where we're willing to try some things just to see if they would work or not. But that's really been huge. You know, the other element that uh, is, is, I'd say the pace of what's happened in the United States in terms of uh, the mergers and acquisition side of it. Um, every year I talk with my good buddy who does most of the M&A here, Alan Cole, and every year it's kind of like, uh, it'll never happen like it did again last. And, uh, you know, here we are, you know, eight years out and it just keep, continues going and accelerating at a different pace rate. There's so much change, but there's so many drivers of change. We haven't really talked about technology and this is the second interview we've done together. There's lots of emerging technologies and and the private equity money coming into the world now in accounting, there's a lot to say about that. Yeah, well, the private equity, uh, to me, that's really interesting. Uh, so um, it's it's really interesting because if, if you, I think what you need to do is you need to look at history. I'm not sure that they've looked at history as much as they have, or maybe they should. I'm probably, I'm probably wrong. These guys are pretty thorough in terms of what- Well, accounting doing. history, they've done it the same way for hundreds of years, Gary, haven't they? <laughs> Profit and loss. <laughs> but in the, in the States in the 1990s, I mean, what happened was we saw this consolidation that ended up in uh, where you had really H&R Block, you had American Express, and you had a company called CBiz. Those three companies successfully put together a consolidation of accounting firms, really looking with a public type of platform to do so. Um, American Express, they're gone. H&R, they're gone. Both of those uh, folded into RSM. So RSM, you know, that's where they got most of their bandwidth from was the failures of those in trying to do it. CBiz is still around. But if you need to, you need to really look at CBiz, I think they have a good understanding as to where firms need to focus on going forward and the private equity. And if you look at private equity and you look at the uh, at public companies, I mean, what, what you see is the same thing. You know, they're looking to satisfy their shareholders and they're looking and how do they satisfy their shareholders, either with current earnings or with, uh, you know, they sell it to somebody else, okay, to enhance the earnings that are there. So the challenge is you take, an, you take a, something that's been around for a long time, 100 years plus, and doing it one way, and, and how do you enhance the earnings, okay, within these organizations, okay, that acquired it to want to go public, to satisfy shareholders to invest, or to sell it down the road to somebody else? And that's the real challenge. So go back and look at CBiz when they first started. CBiz was a consolidation of almost all accounting firms. I think there may have been 100 of them, relatively small firms. And they amassed to maybe a two or three or $400 million accounting firm, okay? That stock stayed the same forever. Seven bucks a share, didn't move, went down to $2 a share. Now it's selling at $43 a share, okay? Look at CBiz today. CBiz today is a $1.2 billion company that is driven by advisory service. It is not driven by accounting. So I think CBiz figured out the accountants maybe were the, uh, the distribution model, but they weren't the profit. So when you look at these private equities, you just have to think, you know, in order for them to be successful, they have to der derive additional profits. And where are they going to derive them from? You really have to derive them from the advisory. It's hard to do it from accounting because it's a personal service business. Rob Brown goes, he works really hard. He brings in all these clients. He makes this money. And it's like, well, I, I you know, I provided the service. I get paid. Where do we siphon off a portion of that and move it to somebody else, you know, who's invested in us? So, so a lot of it just becomes with this ability to use technology, to use money, uh, to use human capital in a way that's going to be more profitable than what firms are today. 
I think CIBA has proven, um, again, looking at them today, I think they're accounting for today could be $400 million and $800 million is coming through add-on advisory services. It's a crazy world. And we've got a situation here where you've coined this phrase before, Gary, that the accounting practices are boomer-owned and millennial-compromised. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that's affecting the, the consolidation going on. In my mind, that's the number one reason for consolidation. So you're looking at, say, firms, you know, you have to have an exit. Until the mid-90s, you know, there was potentially some consolidation there. Again, maybe that didn't work or not. But what was the typical exit strategy? And the typical exit strategy is you would sell the firm to younger people within the organization. If you were smart. That's how I, I bought my data. Okay. And my firm was all aligned to have another generation of people buy us out. Okay, now it didn't happen. And, you know, we can talk about that, but it didn't, you know, but that was what we were trying to do. And, uh, and for every partner I had, I had 33 partners at the end. I mean, how many young people did I have to have to get to place to buy out those 33 partners? So uh, that was the model. Okay? Now, what impacted that model was this millennial culture and this whole idea of uh, my, my friend Rebecca's, Rebecca Ryan's book entitled Live First, Work Second. And this was a book about millennials. And you go to the baby boomers and you say, if you wrote the same book, you know, what would it be? And they all laugh and they say the name of the book would be Work First, Live Second. So uh, you see these millennials who are setting themselves up to take your firm and they're saying, do I really want to do that? Do I really want to work all those hours? Do I really want to not go to the soccer games? Do I really want to be not being there for my family? And uh, and the answer is no. Now, the challenge is they want all the the, uh, the benefits as well, too, of being the partner. They want the money, they want the prestige, but they just don't want to work as hard. And they don't want to pay for your retirement either, do they, Gary? Well, pay for your retirement as well, too. I mean, you know, so, so but but the element is, is that if you're smart and you're running these firms, the people you're going to have to buy buy from you, you've got to set it up so they're going to want to buy it. And, uh, and what does that mean? That means the culture's got to be a millennial culture. That's going to be... Uh, you know, the, the amount that they're going to pay for, it's going to have to be within reach. So where this really became challenging is firms that didn't get it. Um, you know, let me tell you an anecdote one of a firm that I was working with when I first started the consulting firm. And it was a firm and um, it was in the Midwest. Very, very, very successful. And uh, one of the partners called me and they said, we need you to come here. We need help. Well, what's the help? Well, uh, we had the succession plan totally worked out. Perfect. Um, and then all of a sudden what happened is everybody we had in line for the succession plan has quit and gone somewhere else. So um, had me in, uh, you know, you know the answer pretty quickly. Um, and uh, this is something that's not new for me. I've been believing this for a long time. I walked around their offices. I talked about the firm, incredibly profitable firm. They worked really hard. But what happened was they created a culture that was a millennial culture. And these three people, or four people said, I don't want to be here. I'm going to find a millennial culture. They were shocked when they left. So I went to the managing partner and uh, or the partner group and they said, you know, well, what's the solution? And I said, well, the solution is you guys have to build a millennial culture. One that's not going to be as demanding. It's going to be, it's going to fit what they want to do. And I remember the managing partner, he, he goes and he slams his fist on the desk. He says, ah, there's no way I'm going to do it. I'm going to find people exactly like us. <laughs> and uh, they're out of business now. Good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because, he, because he couldn't find them. So, so what's happened is a lot of firms don't get it, don't know how to do it or won't do it. And then you're finding firms that are smaller firms are dependent upon potentially someone buying them out internally. They can't find the people to do it. So what you're seeing is them trying to sell it to the larger firms and like kick it down the road, get some kind of economics base back for their practice. And, and it's not like this is happening to one firm in the United States. This is happening to 10,000 firms in the United States. So thus you could see just the amount of firms that are just not in this place. So within every city, you find these firms that have 10, 15 people, you know, successful firms, uh, 
but with a uh, with no real strategy to exit the firm going forward. And the only thing that's really left to sell somebody else. And what we're seeing also, just you know, just one more thing on that is we're seeing a depression of the pricing on that too, because the value is not there. You know, what are we buying? Can we say with any certainty that the traditional accounting firm hierarchy equity model partner model is broken? Um, it's changing. I mean, I'd say it was perfect until like 10 years ago. Now I would say it's it's changing and whether firms and for some firms, it will still work, but for a lot of firms, it doesn't work. Um, and you know, that's where you're seeing, is this private equity thing going to be able to work out? Or uh, are we going to be able to still compensate and bring in talent and give them enough for really good, talented people to want to come with us in this new model? And you know, I think that's the second challenge within this model. The first is to create the profitability to drive the private equity, who's not doing this you know, to be nice. They're doing it to make a lot of money. So how do you make more money out of it? But you can't make this money, as we all know, because this is a professional service. This is a people business without the right people. So is your model going to be there to be able to attract the best talent possible at the same time? And I think time is going to be tell. And all I could hope is that these private equities, you know, have at least an idea how they want to work this thing through. Well, what's appealing to a, a PE organization is the monthly recurring revenue from a service that is mandated by law. So there's always going to be a need for a compliance and accounting services so that money comes in every month. It's a very elegant business model. If you can leverage that, there's some skin yeah, that, in the game. I mean, you know, let me, let me uh, bingo. You're 100% right. <laughs> that, that is the number one attractor for the private equity looking at this space. Number one attraction is to the, uh, the recurring revenue. Um, uh, that is absolutely it. They love it. You know, I used to always tell people, you know, it's the best business in the world. You go and you do something for somebody. If you do a good job, at it, they're going to come buy the same thing from you for the 30 years in a row. It's I mean, a subscription economy, Gary, isn't it? It's amazing type business. You know, you look at the lawyers and, you know, the lawyers, it depends upon cases. They don't have that kind of, uh, they don't have that kind of recurring business all the time. So that's the number one attraction from private equity. And what that does is, you know, you're absolutely right. That gives you a tremendous foundation, but, you know, the success is going to be based upon what you can add to that foundation and how you can make it better. And that's what I think is going to be advisory services, because if you take that individual tax return and because private equity is there, you're not going to be able to spend any more money on it. They're not going to raise the prices on it. No, what you can do well on it is now you can sell them a wealth management service or insurance or something like that. Can you see the death of managing partners and the birth of CEOs in professional service firms? Um, I, I would look at that a little bit differently. I wouldn't say the birth of CEOs. I would say, um, and this is not new, I, I would say the evolution of the C-suite. Uh, starting to run these firms more professionally. Uh, when I had my firm, uh, uh, we had a uh, one of our advisors was the uh, Banshee partner for Jones Day, which is an international law firm, used to be headquartered in Cleveland, where I was from. He was incredibly valuable to me in terms of what I could learn from him. And, you know, one of, that was one of the first things, you know, we talked about when he looked at Jones Day and he said, you know, we really started becoming successful when we had really professional managers. So, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we're, you know, now you're talking about who fits into professional management. Can you do that with a, uh, with a CPA running the firm? Yeah, of course you can if you have the right CPA, but you could also do it with a non-CPA as well too in running the business. And then you get the whole ideas of a chief financial officer, a chief marketing officer. So I think this evolution of the C-suite and running it more like a business, I think is a huge shift, especially for larger firms. Uh, that's the way that, in my opinion, that's the way they should be professionally. We're straight into the future now, Gary, and I want to ask you to get your crystal ball out. And you've seen so many trends and changes, some of which you couldn't have predicted. But what do you feel is coming up in the next five to 10 years for the accounting profession? You know, one of the big elements, and you know, I don't know what this is like on an international basis, but there's a there's a huge element in the United States. And uh, it has to do with something that people don't like talking about. And that's uh, the whole 
idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you look at the accounting from the United States, what you find for the most part is a Caucasian, uh, high percentage of Caucasian players in this game. You've gone and opened him. the diversity box now. We've had uh, Anton Lewis on, Professor Anton Lewis, talking about the the predominance of white supremacy in accounting and where are the black accountants. So you're definitely hitting a, a, a hot topic here, Gary. Talk more. Yes. Yeah, so, so um, you know, what happens in the United States, I laugh at it. Uh, my firm, uh, we had the highest percentage of women partners of any top 100 firm. And along the way, we had the highest percentage of women leadership of any firm. I was really proud of that. I was really proud of what we were able to accomplish. Our- was it double digit? Oh, yes. It was far away double digit. Well, the, the benchmark's quite low, Gary, is my point. Yeah, we, I mean, our, our, our women partners was 40% of the firm and senior leadership was 40%. And then our, our, in our ranks, uh, females were 55%, 60%. Uh, so, but, you know, regardless, you know, that was part of our strategy being suburban. You know, we'd like to get women who used to work for the big eight who they didn't, they didn't want to go downtown anymore. We were able to give them, you know, better, better positioning. So, um, you know, all that kind of stuff kind of played well for us in terms of, uh, of that. But you do that. So, so you go to accounting firms today and they boast upon their women. Oh, well, we have all these women, you know, we're diverse. We have all these women and, and it's, it's just bull. I mean, you know, you know, where are the blacks? I mean, we're the United States, where are the Hispanics? Okay. You know, where's that whole element? And, and when you will look at it, what you see is from a, uh, if you just take the, uh, the demographics of where the United States is today and where it's heading and you compare that against the accounting firm, you know, all you see is there's big problems and firms have really got to be able to understand how to educate and be able to just it's going to have. It's going to end up being a, uh, a derivative of what your country looks like. So that's a big issue going forward. Um, and I think uh, in the United States. I think the United States has failed miserably at that, uh, really miserably, um, in terms of their ability to be successful there. You know, how do you how do you be successful? I will tell you, if you focus on it, you can be successful. At my little firm, we had 575 people. Uh, we we were like the United Nations. We had people <laughs> from Russia. We had Ukrainians. We had uh, People from all, really all over the world. We have a significant amount of black accounts. So we really focused on it. So I think you could do that if you really work at it, rather than just kind of kick it down the can. But it certainly would be better if you know if your international associations and associations, you know, they're the ones who are representing you could do a better job. I know that they've made some efforts, but I don't think they've really gotten the results that are really successful. Let's call them out for sure on being the voice of the profession, but. You weren't being diverse in your approach to tick a, a box, Gary. You obviously saw some economic uplift of diversity in your firm and what those female partners were bringing to the table, didn't you? Well, you know, it's just the way I think. I mean, I never saw a difference. Uh, I just never saw a difference. In you just went to the best you know, people for the role. Yeah, yeah right. And, and we saw opportunity. And, you know, and I just was briefly kind of saying was, you know, there was a point in time, this, I'm going back, I've been doing this a long time, but there was a point in time, I would say in the 80s and early 90s, that if you were a woman and you were working for a big eight accounting firm and you had a baby, your career was stalled, okay? They didn't know what to do with you, you know? And, uh, and what happened was we became suburban. One woman in particular came to work with me, a woman named Patty Rubin. She was great. She was bright. She had a kid and she couldn't figure it out. And Price Waterhouse told her, oh, we're going to figure it out. And she didn't believe him. And she ended up approaching, and I talked to her, and I said, we would figure it out. She had a 30-year career with me, and she became the model for people working for us. So we started saying, well, if they're not going to want these really talented people, there's no reason we can't do that. 
So what did that mean? We had means we had part-time partners. We had to adjust schedules. We had to figure all that out. That was the cultural you know, difference we had. Now the world is caught up with that, I think to a you know, significant degree with respect to the women's side of it, but we still have these hurdles in terms of people of color. You know, that's just got to change. And final thoughts, Gary, what's coming up with private equity and M&A activity in the accounting world over the next few years? Where are we going to end up? Well, M&A is going to continue because of the baby boomer stuff we talked about. And this is not just the small firms, is it? We've seen really big firms now that are getting around the table and merging. Yeah, and that gets back to what we were talking maybe a little about before. Uh, what I think it was on this one in terms of about brand recognition. You know, the bigger you are, you do have a chance to create a brand. So a lot of these firms like Dixon Hughes and uh, BKD Hero are merging. They're going to be a $1.5 billion firm. A lot of this is based upon the brand for talents. You know, their ability to really have a national brand where before it was just more challenging to do it. You know, the private equity side, I think is still very challenging. Um, you know, in order to get the uh, private equity interested in the beginning, you have to have firms that are incredibly profitable. I don't think most firms are profitable enough for private equity. Because what private equity is basically saying is I'm going to give you money for cash flow, uh, but then I have to enhance the cash flow. So that first question is how many firms can give money? So if the average partner is making $300,000, can they give some of that cash flow for a one-time hit of that uh, uh, infusion of uh, money to buy the firm? So they have to work that through. But usually you're finding, I think, the private equity deals that are going to be the more successful ones where you have the, the partners who are making a million dollars and say, yeah, I mean, I could live on 700. Here's 300. You know, uh, now you have a piece of what I'm doing. And then on top of that, invest and see if we can grow it from there. So I think the office is going to, uh, the audience is going to be limited, but nonetheless, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a tremendous amount of interest because it's there. Um, and you're seeing, you know, you got 44,000 CPA firms and 3,000 private equities who were stalled a lot of them because they can't spend as much money. So now there's three deals that were done at the top 100 firms in the United States. So now every private equity is, you know, looking at this and saying, hey, is there a spot for me? So there's a lot of interest at this point in time. You know, I just think it's going to be a couple of years to see if they could be successful or not in, uh, in really ratcheting up the industry. If I took you back 30, 40 years, Gary, would you still come into accounting? Yeah, I, um, I, I would, um, you know, I, I think um, I do some private equity stuff right now, which I kind of like, and it's kind of fun. I'm really, I think I'm good with growing businesses, but, um, I, and I don't mean to this, I guess I do mean this in somewhat of a derogatory way. People used to come to me over my, my whole life, and I live in a city called Cleveland, Ohio, uh, best known for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, it, it's, it's a nice city. It's a Midwestern city. You know, the population in the whole region is a couple million people. And, you know, we have great arts and run on great lakes and it's a nice place to live. Uh, but it's not in favor anymore. You know, it's, it's not sunny. It's not California. It's not Florida. Our weather's a little bit challenging. So uh, um, uh, the place I've been has been always had just headwinds, no tailwinds. And uh, I was able to grow this firm from Cleveland, Ohio, to the 37th largest firm in the United States. So people said, how'd you do that? And I said, well, when you're competing against CPAs, it's not that hard. And uh, and that's kind of, you know, where I was at. I, I think I was really a good accountant. I liked figuring things out and I helped like helping clients. But the reality was I was a better businessman than I was an accountant. And I happened to find myself in, a, uh, in an industry that you would think it would have great business people, but they just didn't. It was a contrary. So firms that are really good, firms that can execute, firms that are really smart can do really, really well. Gary Seamus, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your insights today. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Vissick.